Blog Talk Radio. Hi and welcome to The Art of Film Funding. I'm your co-host, Claire Papan, along with Carol Dean, author of the best-selling book, The Art of Film Funding. Carol is also the founder and president of From the Heart Productions and the host of this show. Robert Segel has more than 20 years' experience in the counseling and representation of producers, writers, directors, distribution companies, and foreign sales agents concerning development, production, marketing, distribution, and exploitation of fiction and nonfiction film, television, publishing, and new media projects. His clients' projects have appeared theatrically and on network, syndicated, public, and cable television, and have earned Academy Award and Emmy nominations and awards and prizes at major film festivals. And Carol, I understand that Robert is a donor to your Dean Film Grants. Yes, absolutely, Claire. Robert fully filmmakers with a generous deduction of his fees. Thank you for joining us, Robert. Thank you. You know, what we want to cover both... Uh, today is documentary and feature funding, and that will include uh, funding for shorts and webisodes. As an attorney, you handle all types of film funding, so tell us what's the most common uh, funding today for features. Well, again, I always say it's a bit of a quilt. It's a little bit of everything, but nowadays, more than in the past, there is a reliance on the traditional standby equity, raising, you know, finding investors to raise money. I mean, now, basically, you know, that's the chief component. Now, between tax incentives, that helps fill up a certain amount of, uh, you know, of, of funding towards your your budget. But a lot of people don't realize that when we talk about these tax, you know, incentives, and sometimes they're, they're rebates, and a few states they're actually transferable tax credits. Yet, basically, you only get those, you know, either the tax credits or the um, or the uh, or these rebates once you're done with production. So you still have to raise enough money in order to cash flow your production, whether through equity or having to then rely on a loan. And obviously that always is a little bit more difficult because you know, loans have to get repaid. You know, A, it has to be repaid, and B, it has to be repaid in somewhat of a timely manner uh, in, in most cases. So basically, so yeah, you might have a little bit of a loan component, but then you have to figure out whether or not the lender is a secure creditor or unsecured against the rights to your film. So loans are a little bit difficult for obvious reasons. In terms of the tax incentives, again, what's happened is that you used to be you used those tax incentives because you had to, you know, you had uh, you had to pay some bills. A lot of times the investors are saying, we want that tax incentive as soon as, soon as it's available because we want to put it towards recouping the investment we made in your film or, or your other project. So 
it used to be like, oh, we'd use it for like marketing or festivals and all that. And it's like, no, the investors, they want the money back. If you want to have that money, you should put that in your budget and raised it. So, that, that, you know, again, these a lot of people don't realize that, you know, it, it's a tool, but it's a, it's, you know, it's, it's not the buy all, be all and end all of, uh, and it has to be used in a certain manner. And so, again, between production incentives and equity and a small case, you know, in terms of loans, you know, because, again, most people that make serious loans, they want collateral, and the collateral is the rights to your film. And yeah. sometimes you may have to do that, but you try to, you know, hold it off or deal with it. But mostly it's equity, tax incentives, and... Um, you know, maybe some in-kind services. We really don't have any co-productions here in the United States because they're really for the rest of the world. We're not a signatory to any co you know, official co-production. We can have co-ventures, but you're not going to get basically the benefits of subsidies under several circumstances. So, as I said, it's a bit of a quilt and I know people talk about, and we've discussed this whole issue about pre-sales. The pre-sales are, you know, again, it was like the go-go 80s where basically you can make a poster and get some people and you finance your film. Those days are kind of gone. And a lot of sales agents and distributors who wanted to basically get in on the ground floor on a project based on a cast and a director or subject matter that, started basically making pre-sales and basically, you know, finance, you know, getting money in earlier or or basically getting funding secured earlier. They got burned when these projects that looks good on paper didn't quite pan out in the marketplace. Um, is there, I think it is, but it's for a much higher end um you know, basically, even five million. We used to be you know, more. You know, even then, I think a lot of people are still gun shy, and they want to. They'd rather just wait and see the full film, and maybe pay some more rather than get it on the ground floor, unless it's a director that you know is recognized. I mean, there are packages that are being sold, but they're very on the kind of on the high end. You know, um, in terms of pre-sales. So, those, again, that's mostly the narrative side. Yes. Um, well, let's just uh, – let me ask you a couple of questions about what you just said. Um, mm-hmm. Well, uh, this is really important for filmmakers to think about, to put in their festivals and their marketing, because we hear that you're not supposed to put your, your, your marketing in your production budget. That's a separate budget. But I can see why the, if you don't have it in there, the investors would say, wait, we weren't expecting that. Yeah, a lot of times the the budget is kind of a lean and mean type of type of situation, and again, the question is always with the budget: how far does this take the project? Hopefully, it takes you through principal photography and post production, but you know, down the road, obviously, you do have some festivals, and of course, the one thing that a lot of people don't budget for is, you know deliverables once you make a deal with a sales agent or a distributor you know basically there's more money that there is an omission and certain technical things there are fewer now because we use we don't really use film we don't interpositives and inter negatives anymore but 
you know, uh, I got you know, I deal with um, with producers who, you know, they don't they're trying to scrounge to get the money together for um, for E and O. You know, there is an omission insurance. You know, just in case there's any claims of copyright infringement or or defamation or evasion of privacy, et cetera, and or title searches, you know, basically, or copyright searches, or, you know, again, there's a whole laundry list in the deliverables that people don't really think about until it happens, and then they have to kind of scramble. And I, and I won't even get into the issue of music rights, because that, I mean, I, I will if you want me to, obviously, because, um, again, a lot of people, you know, you know they have to get get a board, get a production supervisor, or something like that to deal with it now. Because later on, you know when you get wedded to the your temp track or the track that you're going to use, along with your original score, you you know first thing is the festival licenses and the these film festival licenses. I always consider it it's like getting like an addict and you're getting hooked. They give you, oh, you, we'll do it for $500 or we'll do it for, you know, sometimes it'll be $1,000 or it'll be like $300. But again, that's just for the festivals. What happens when the festivals are over and you have to make a deal? And what becomes problematical is that sometimes you can pre-negotiate with step deals for as it goes into different marketplaces However, um, there are certain licensors of musical compositions and recordings that do not want to do that. They say, when you got your distribution, come back to us. <laughs> and then ones who say that, you got to really think long and hard whether or not you can live with that piece of music, whether it's a composition or that. And But this is just kind of a, an example of what... You know that funding. You know, uh, dealing with people that have to go raise raise that type of money uh, in order to have a, a a releasable film at the end of the day. Yes. Mm-hmm. I, I always recommend people uh, create their own music. Oh, and, and the more that you can do original, you know, the better. And again, um, even that dynamic has changed. And that used to be that the production company owned the publishing rights to the score and the master recordings. But as they became more competitive and the prices, you know, what you could offer your composer for a fee was lower and lower, the producers had to make a decision. They're not going to go into the music publishing business, so they let the composer keep retain the publishing rights and just license it for the purposes of the film or the documentary or whatever project it is, you know, and, and basically as long as you put what's called a hold back in where it doesn't go to another audiovisual company for a certain period of time so you have an exclusive, that's that's good. And um, And then the question is, you know, who owns the masters? You know, basically, if you're giving like a flat fee to your composer, your composer's using that money to make masters and they're saying, we want the masters, we'll just license them to you like we are the music publishing rights. So uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's shifted. It's no longer production companies can use it as an asset, you know, necessarily. They, they're basically getting the rights that they need in order to make it work, work within their budget. So oh, that's I another... See. Mm-hmm. Another thing that you really have to investigate carefully. 
Well, tell when you mentioned tax incentives, I just wonder, have you heard anything about the 181 coming back for 2017? Basically, it's still kind of up in the air. There are like two schools of thought. One school of thought, I think, is basically, you know, the same thing that's happening with the arts in general, whether it's the NEH or the NEA or public television. Basically, they're saying, you know, uh, the priority for our money is putting money into the defense, the military, and other, you know, other items, so that the, you know, the arts or media or what have you is getting a lower priority. So it's not really high on the high on the uh, list of um, priorities. Um, on the other hand, basically, it does bring in money and it's good for the economy. So. I'm not sure this year. I think they have their. I think basically, you know, this this White House and this Congress has a lot to contend with between health and taxes and all that to really deal with the Section 181. You know, it may happen. Yeah, I mean, again, a lot of people don't really. Uh, you know, they have to realize it's certain type of funding that that is eligible for Section 181, but that's a whole separate discussion. Uh, for oh, a moment, well, maybe people somebody have to will through without them unless it was grandfathered in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes. Carol. Yeah, maybe they'll squeeze it into another bill, to go, like they did before. They sort of stuck it into some other big thing that was going through, and it passed. It happens sometimes. Now they're trying to stick like health legislation through as, as part of as a, in the extender bills and all that, um, <laughs> just to get sneak it back past and you know, some other things. So they got they got their own priorities of what they have to sneak in through the back door. Mhm. Okay. All right. Well, that's really good. So then, uh, let's talk about um, one more thing before we leave feature funding. Filmmakers usually have to have a private placement memorandum before they can accept funding, right? They need to have the investment documents. And, again, there are really three that most people deal with, the most important of which is the operating agreement, if it's an LLC or limited partnership agreement, if we're going going old school with limited partnerships, because that talks about the rights and obligations of the production company, the managers who are frequently the, on the production team, and the uh, and the rights and responsibilities of the investors who are frequently members. Now, usually there is a, a, a component that's a private placement memorandum, which is kind of it's like a kind of it's it's kind of like a business plan, but more detailed and has excerpts from the operating agreement. So it's it's kind of like a general overview of what the operating agreement is going to be, and generally, um, you know, and because it talks about a lot of elements like you know the project and the people involved and the waterfall of how monies flow back, et cetera, and but there are situations, especially um, where sometimes it'll just be the operating agreement and what's called a subscription agreement. But uh, where basically it's the investors that are making the warranties and representations that they can make this investment. Generally, it's the three because the private placement memorandum is a way of kind of getting an introduction, getting you used to reading the actual operating agreement, which is the investment agreement. You know, and it's like people read that and they get informed on key points, and then they turn to the 
agreement that they're going to actually sign, which is the operating agreement for the LLC, and then there'll be the subscription agreement, which will just make have investors making assurances, especially if they call themselves accredited investors, um, where they make $200,000 a year in the last two years, or 300000 with a spouse, or they have a net worth of a million dollars, excluding their principal residency. You know, there's a lot more flexibility when you have, like, all accredited investors. Like in the theater world, like Broadway, you know, they only want to deal with accredited investors for obvious reasons because it's millions of dollars. So, um, so basically, yeah, that, I mean, usually that's why you have the prior place memorandum. You have the operating agreement, which is your investment contract, and then your subscription agreement, you know, for your investors to basically make some representations that they're doing this, they're not doing it for resale, that they have a certain amount of money if they want to be deemed credit investors, so forth. And, yeah, that has to basically be in place. And the size of the budget doesn't make it any more or less the same requirement. Right. Mm-hmm. That's the problem. If your budget's 30000 you still must pay for these uh, uh, agreements. Yeah, it's the co- it's the cost of doing business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is, uh, and the government requires it. They're very picky about this and features. So, but some filmmakers tell me that they choose uh, that they choose their lawyer. Then they get out on the street, start looking for funding, and once they know that they've got the first money coming in, uh, then they get the PPM paid for or some papers paid for, and they use that to close the deal. So I think that's got to get Quite close. Right? Well, yeah, what they're doing is really what they do in theater more prevalently when they want to do workshops and auditions and things like that. The idea is to get the front money or the seed money enough so you can pay your attorney to prepare the documents, your accountant, you know, forming the production entity, engaging a producer or a line producer to prepare a detailed budget so you can tell people how much the film is or if it is or within what range, if there's a minimum and a maximum. Um and, you know, basically getting a casting director. So, you know, it's just it's it's the seed money to start a business and and usually that's a more informal type of agreement, but you have to offer a type of deal where they either get their money back as soon as it's complete, if and when it's fully capitalized, or the ability to convert that uh, development investment into a production investment and maybe having a kicker for putting in the money at an earliest earliest stage, which is the most risky because there may not have been capitalization or a film. Mm-hmm. Okay. Wow, it gets so complicated. All right. Mm-hmm. Um but I want to know something. We work really hard, I do, with filmmakers to find um, comparison films, films that are similar in uh, genre and uh, and budget, and uh, and get so that they have uh, three to five that they can show that the budget and then the gross that they made, so that the investor sees that this film has the potential to do what the other films did. And the question I have for you is what, how, how, how often do the uh, donor or the investors or their accountants question uh, these films and how careful must you be in choosing them? 
Well, I, I mean, the fir first off, there should be language usually in caps or in bold saying that these, if you're doing projections, you know, they're, they're guesstimates based on certain assumptions. If you're using comparable films or what's basically, again, it's no guarantee a film that did well. You know, one film will do well in another one necessarily because there are a lot of different factors. And part of those factors are, you know, you need to find comparables that are in the same budget range more or less. I mean, you can't use a, you know, a film that's, you know, basically five, you know, five hundred thousand dollars with a film that's twenty, thirty million dollars. Uh, you know, basically they have different production values, and again, the subject matters should be comparable. You know, in that same genre, in that you know, um, whether it's a genre or a drama or something like that. Drama is always difficult, difficult to really find now. Analogies for and and the idea is you got to find recent examples. I mean, you can't go back to ordinary people. I mean, or you know, for family right. drama. So you you know you be, and again, where do you, where do you find them? That's a, it's a good question. There are a couple of services that provide it. Otherwise, you're doing an enormous amount of research, and and part of the problem is that. Box office is is open to everybody. The information, everything else becomes more problematical, and and now with streaming and all that, the information has gotten even more confidential. So, you know, it's it's, it's something where you almost have to look for you know somebody who, you know, basically uh, you know generates that type of list. I mean, there are a couple of services that you know do it. You know, obviously for a fee. And you know, again, and those comparables may not be ideal, but they're something to use. It's it's a, it's it's a, it's more of a marketing aspect to it. You know, um, you have to really you know cautiously approach it, and again, not oversell it and provide a disclaimer so that people you know don't say, oh, hey, basically, uh, you know, this film did. You know, it's like somebody has. It had family films or, or animated films, and they were they were comparing Disney and non Disney. I mean, which is really it's like you know the proverbial chalk and cheese. So it's a uh, it's difficult. Maybe the documentaries might be more on point because they're the budgets are maybe more comparable. We don't have as big a swing as we do with narratives and and the subject matters. There may be more of an analogy, you know, if you're dealing with rights and personal stories and things like that. So, uh, yeah, again, it's, it's a marketing tool. And in the ideal sense, you'd only put it in your business plan or your, you know, your overview. You wouldn't put them into documents that are legal documents, and you wouldn't put them in the operating agreement, which is the investor agreement that's signed. Put them in the business plan only. Yeah, that makes sense. And in capital letters, that this is these are hypothetical. Yeah, um, again, these are they're you know they're basically they're estimates. They're you know they're basically they're not facts. And again, it depends on the circumstances of of each particular project. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. Well, now we want to get into hybrid on uh, features. Um, I know that I sometimes work with features who come to me, and in effect, what they need to do is raise their first money in. So they've got their fifty thousand or whatever they have set their budget calls for for beginning funding, 
and I've helped a couple of many uh, films raise that uh, money and then go on to an investor-style relationship. So that is really a hybrid for a feature. Uh, and I know that it depends on the nonprofit and their contract. And our contract does not have a anything that precludes you from going uh, to an investment status. You can leave us within 30 days, and but once you go with the investment, you're there. You cross that line, and you're over on the investment side. Yeah, right? this is generally generally the, the idea of hybrid this hybrid now, uh, model in terms of documentaries, especially. Um, Again, people don't realize until very recently, most of the funding for documentaries were donations as they worked with, you know, a documentarian works with a, a 501c3 nonprofit fiscal sponsors, such as, you know, yourself. Um, or, or, you know, and then, or basically, uh, you know, again, in terms of getting donations, although not all donations are tax deductible, as you know. I mean, if you want a tax deductible, you know, and if you want a donation, you got to do it, you know, you have to do it through the 501c3 uh, fiscal sponsor. Or it's grants, you know, and grants, one, they're, they're kind of like the lottery. you got to be in it to win it. <laughs> and, yeah, and then the other part of it is now more and more funding is not being done like 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 uh like the MacArthur grants basically they they made a decision that they were not going to make the direct grants to the recipient it's the whoever they're a documentarian or a fiction filmmaker or whatever uh they're going to basically provide funding to a company you know such as uh, i don't know like chicken and egg or Cinereach or others uh, or the you know San Francisco Film Society, and they're the ones that are going to interact with the recipient, um, you know, media maker. We'll, we'll say because they they just they don't want to get caught in the weeds. They just they want to basically provide you know the money to a uh, to a an organization that does deal with you know you know media maker recipients themselves. So. Um, yeah, that's, I think that's, that's really that mm -hmm. uh, because you see, I think they, these like MacArthur and larger organizations recognize the fact that filmmakers need a lot more support and comfort and care mm -hmm. than exactly. just to give them the money and say goodbye, good luck. Um, I know with my grant that you have a monthly consultation with me and I stay on top of everything with you as long as the filmmaker wants it. Most of them do. Some of them I'm still working with two or three years later because mm -hmm. they need a sounding board and they uh, they go to try something one way and it doesn't work and they have to try it again. So it, uh, And they've got to have advice on the uh, uh, distribution these days, which is all over the place. It's a lot of fun, but they need from the day they get that grant going forward. So by giving it to other smaller organizations who have the time and the people and the knowledge to help and handhold them to go further, I think that is a, a very 
good decision. Yeah, well, basically, from the heart, productions is more an exception than the rule. I mean, basically, ones that issue grants, at, you know, you know, basically, that's their job. They're not really supposed to be kind of, you know, mentors, teachers, sounding boards, or executive, de facto executive producers. That's kind of a, a production consultants. I mean, that's a very unique mandate, I think, for your organization. The other is, as long as, you know, the, the money gets through into the media maker, you know, everyone's kind of ahead of the game. So it's a very right. different situation. And, and again, what you, again, uh, the fiscal sponsors, they, they have a, again, some of them are very, very skittish about being involved in projects that have investors in it. They're comfortable with, you know, donations and grants, et cetera. Um, and they just want to steer clear of anything that has an investor component to it. And, Certain certain fiscal sponsors, I mean, like you know, such as the IDA, the International Documentary Association, they're a little bit more pragmatic about it, and they deal with projects that have an investor component in it. And there's, you know, a you know, company like Women Make Movies, they they, they do a hybrid. They kind of deal with the hybrid system as well. Uh, again, it's really your threshold for dealing with the issue of working with a project that has an investment component to it. And that's really the decision. There's nothing that precludes it, you know, necessarily, you know, in, in tax law or any other law, but it's just basically there's a comfort level that. Uh, where they think the 501c3 not-for-profit status might be in question, where they want to, certain people are going to be more conservative than others. Right, right. Mm -hmm. But then, uh, so basically, are you starting to see more docs go into this hybrid type of funding? Yes, I think so, because, and again, I think the timing is, if you're going to basically engage in this hybrid, you know, uh, type of uh, model for primarily documentaries, the idea is to try to get your grants and donations, you know, up front if possible, you know, uh, especially, you know, especially in the issue of donations, if your fiscal sponsor, you know, is going to say at, at the end of the day, I think this is where we part company. So you try as much as you can to do that, but again, there will be, you know, there might be a, a lot of projects that are going to require donations, not just for the preliminary or upfront financing, but throughout the entire process itself. That's why this is a, this whole idea of investor slash, you know, non-investor is, is a very relatively new model because people saw, you know, films like Michael Moore's film and Morgan and, and, uh, Morgan Spurlock's film, you know, that basically were informative, but also quite interesting and entertaining, so, and crossing somewhat a little bit more into the mainstream audience, as opposed to those who basically wanted to basically watch the migration of penguins or any other subject like that. And even the migration of penguins, when it's the flight, you know, the flight of the penguins, it's it's basically, it's, it's informative, but it's also very enlightening and entertaining and people I think more and more dealing with those like fiction tropes you know 
that it's a documentary, it's nonfiction, but it has a lot of the elements of narrative. Yes, yes, it does. Wow, that's great. Well, now let's talk about documentary funding um, because you have—I uh, know that you've helped me with contracts for documentary uh, filmmakers when they get decent-sized grants. Usually, it comes with a contract that says how they want their name shown or what position they want in the film, and and sometimes many other things are included. So. Yeah. That's when filmmakers really need an attorney is when they get into those grant contracts, Yeah, right? because, you know, you take something like the, the NEH. Well, while it's still here, Knockwood, uh, you know, um, basically, um, you know, they have rules about how they're credited, use of funding, you know, uh, you know, and and it, it, there, there are rules and not necessarily, you know, basic – I mean, rules are basically contractual provisions, you know, uh, that have to be, you know, understood and, and incorporated and complied with if you want to basically use that particular entity for funding purposes. So that's something, and uh, I have, I'm dealing with one project where we have, you know, we have ITVS and we have... Uh, NEH, we have um, public television, and you know, besides ITVS, I mean, we have a, whole, you know, we have a whole CPB, you know, called, that's the umbrella of corporation of public broadcasting, and they each have yes. their own way of, of, of defining certain terms, especially what proceeds are, and we have to reconcile them, and it's tough because everybody's set in their ways. Yes. So, so that, that's word. And- Contracts mean something. You just can't read it quickly and think I've got it. You really need to know the legal ramifications of each paragraph. Yeah, you, you, yeah, right. You take their money. You got. You've agreed to their terms. You know, and you usually sign off on that. Um, and you know, then that's that's one component. And again, you'll notice a lot of times when it's like ITVS or other aspects of public television. A lot of documentarians and others don't realize that when you wind up on public television, certain of your revenue streams are going to be affected, such as you know via video on demand, description video on demand, because you know basically public TV kind of takes takes it over for the license period, which could be three or four years. So TV, you mean PBS wants your VOD money? Well, I mean, again, they have certain. I mean, you can probably have access to say iTunes if you want to sell it, you know. Uh, but again, you know, basically, you don't see many deals with say Netflix or Amazon and public television. If, and again, this is interesting, especially if money is being used to finance the production. Uh-huh. You see, if if basically if you're using the money, the public television money. Public monies to finance the production. That's one scenario. If you've, if basically you've produced your project, not using any of the public television money, necessarily, you have a little more f- flexibility because it's it's an acquis- it's a pure acquisition. It's not a de facto funding source. See, a lot of um, a lot of people, a lot of documentarians and others say, hey, I, I got money from PBS. I didn't get an advance when uh, when we licensed the distribution deal. 
and I have to say to them, you know that money you took in order to produce the project? That was your advance. <laughs> 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 that, yeah, that, that you know, you know, there may be a situation where you might get money over and above that, but you know, don't be surprised if you know that's 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 the money that they earmarked for your project. That's it. So, You've got it. Wow. Yes, yeah, so you, you have to be you know really mindful of of that, and then it's the whole issue again with the coordinating the windows. You know, especially if you're dealing educational and non-educational and and again, distribution—it's been—it's so fragmented now that um, you know you have to really work with people. And it's not like it, it used to be like an all rights deal to one company, and that's it. And it isn't just like oh, someone gets you know domestic, and someone gets foreign. The rest of the world—it's being divided up, you know, into into more split rights situations. It is, right. Well, let me ask you this, because you mentioned something about the fact that most people don't uh, budget enough for deliverables. What Can you give us a round number like 5,000, 3,000, 8,000? What's a good number to consider for deliverables? Well, again, it, it really it depends on uh, if your film, you know. Again, most of the films are are, are digitally based and not, you know, on celluloid, so that kind of helps. But you know, it it can range from, you know, just uh, see. Basically, if it's like you only have digital distribution and you're making deals with iTunes and others, we're talking in the thousands of dollars. But if basically there's you know more that you know you know more elements are are being requested you know and and again some of those elements you should have had as part of producing the film you may wind up having to pay you know you know I don't know $20,000 and then and then of course the whole music issue which gets shoved to the end of the of the process in the line that's where it's like Oh my God! I got to raise fifty thousand dollars to use the music that I'm having in my film. So, right. so again, the question is, how much of it is original music? You know, that's been commissioned as opposed to existing. And again, is this just going to have a tele, you know, basically a digital run, or is it going to basically wind up in movie theaters, you know, for you know theatrical distribution that will require. Uh, being able to prepare, you know, your own trailer maybe or your own one sheet and, of course, the press materials and hiring a publicist. And people don't realize, you know, it's like, hey, I got into Sundance or I got into South by Southwest or Toronto. Great. You have the right to spend more money, <laughs> you know, <laughs> hoping that, you know, basically it'll be, you know, your project will get recognized. But you're going to have to put people up. And see, at least with the documentaries, it's fewer people. With the narratives, if you got you know talent, name talent, you know they all want to be at the festival premiere of the film, you know, as well as the commercial premiere. And and then you, how do you get that money if you can't get it out of the distributor? You know, again, people don't realize you may have to wind up having to raise additional monies just for winding up, you know, getting distribution or going to festivals. Yes. So it's, uh, I see a lot of films getting into that position when they get into post and they start realizing this is not the end. They they really hit get into a panic about the money because they're very close but still far away. 
it's in 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 so it's it's very difficult because you you don't know if you're going to get into a festival you know again you try to maybe put put aside maybe ten twenty thousand dollars but you may burn through it depending on where you go i mean if you wind up going to you know you know basically you know sundance or toronto it's just you got you got to bring people there <laughs> you know your director your producer at a minimum you know, or maybe just a director at a minimum, um, right. and you know, and and you know that's, and then you gotta put them up, and those those costs, you know, they add up, and you can maybe try to make you know, an estimate, but it's not gonna be. Circumstances may change that number. Exactly. Well, um, you know, talking about contracts and things, uh, just getting the money, that's only one part of the contracts when you start to sell your film. I know you work with HBO and a lot of the cable channels uh, and other avenues for people to distribute their films. So I think that would be where you uh, can find a lot of caveats in your contract that where. Uh, that calls for having a very smart, knowledgeable, experienced lawyer to help you uh, negotiate. Because my friends always say in the film industry, a contractor is a beginning negotiation. You take it from there. But if you don't know what's in there, if you don't understand all the wording, you can be in trouble, right? It's 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 very it's very true. And and again, the, uh, you, you deal a lot with sales agent distributors that want to just negotiate the key deal terms and they shoot it into an email or 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 some kind of term sheet or something like that and they don't want to take out the long form contract until you agree and I really I try to discourage that as much as possible because you should be able to review the terms in the appropriate context in the long form agreement Again, there may be certain distributors, sales agents, and licensees that just don't want to move off the dime, so to speak, in order to, um, you know, unless they know that, oh, we've agreed to the advance, we've agreed to the percentages, we've agreed to scope of rights, we've agreed to the term, and until you deal negotiate those principal deals, they don't want to move forward. And it's always like kind of approach that with a certain degree of caution and, you know, at the end of the day, you know, how badly do you want to work with these people? And that's the decision I think only the producer documentarian has to make for themselves. And and again, you know, basically, if you get a contract, make sure you got a delivery schedule attached to it. Or, you know, basically, there's nothing that stops you from if you can basically find a colleague and say, oh, in your distribution deal, can you, you know, basically send me your delivery schedule? Because usually that's not confidential, the delivery schedule, um, as a general rule, and you'll at least have a kind of a template for that. But um, but again, you know, again, when it comes to the materials, I say, you know, that's really where the producers and the others have to work in. I mean, uh, you know, I you know, I, I know, know the general terms in terms of physical delivery, but it's not my day in and day out forte. Right. You know, you know, you, in terms uh, of. Hmm? I was just going to uh, change the subject once one more time. The sales sure. agents. You've mentioned sales agents before. When do you think is a good idea for a filmmaker to use a sales agent? 
Well, usually it's, it's a kind of an opening, like with festivals, if it's go and being invited to a festival, and um, because usually it's you know it's going to have some kind of initial presentation. And then I'm getting there's two schools of thought recently dealing with sales agents and producer reps. There was a time where it you know you tried not to do a, your your festival premiere and again it's like how many times can you be a virgin are you the premiere domestically worldwide you know in Canada or in the United States etc uh, and it used to be they really wanted to be part of controlling that as part of in terms of presenting the film but I'm finding more and more of these producers reps and sales agents saying Oh, go get it to you know the festival and then give me a call, and mm-hmm. that, that was something quite different from what it used to be with certain producer reps and sales agents. But again, it's not just get into any festival. It's like, well, did you get into you know Sundance and Toronto and South by Southwest? Did you get into Tribeca? Did you get into you know you know the list? You know. You, the list goes on, but it doesn't go on very long. It's a lot shorter than people think, because yes. people say, "Oh, where do all the distributors go and sales agents?" Well, I just gave you a list of where they go. <laughs> if, you, if you were listening to me, you know the answer to that. <laughs> Here, and obviously overseas, because you know, obviously you have Cannes and Venice, and you know, is in Berlin, you know, as well. So. Yeah, I mean that's that's a whole other separate cottage industry um, in terms of doing it, and there are a lot of resources. I mean, a lot of people that are providing consultation in various areas. So, you know, it, you don't have to you know kind of reinvent the wheel, you know. But of course, you're going to have to pay to not have to reinvent the wheel. But that's you know that's <laughs> that's, that's, that's true of any in any business. Um, you know, dealing with that and. And again, you know, you don't take the first deal that comes along and you got, you know, at a certain point, you know, are you willing to walk away from the deal or the deals? And sometimes it's just one deal. It's one deal or or basically you're you're going to have to do self-distribution, which is more prevalent a policy especially in nonfiction and documentaries. It's like the music industry where there is more and more reliance on on self-distribution as opposed to relying on a record label doing your distribution. I mean, it's still done. Like it's still done for, for you know, motion pictures, but, you know... It's not like, oh, I can't get I can't get a distributor, you know, or a record label, you know, I have to basically put my put my project away on hold forever. And it's like, no, you can actually work it. Yes, you may not be able to do your next project. Your next project may be getting this into the marketplace and you may have to uh-huh. rely on some people who have the experience in the sales area and social media, I mean, you know, and outreach, especially for the nonfiction projects. I mean, there are people that are specializing in that in and of itself. So right. it's a whole, it's a whole, it's, 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 you got a lot more entrepreneurs out there, whether they like it or not. 
<laughs> that's exactly right. And that's what filmmakers really are. They're entrepreneurs. And it's time they really took that handle on and, and ran with it because they a lot of times they just say, oh, I'm trying to just make my money back. No, you want to make a profit. That's what it's all about. This is the business of film. And, and you've got to be really sharp not to spend years making it and then lose it on a contract. And, and it's it's not only that, but also the fact that you're not it's not it's not just you're one and done. You've told your story, and now you can go on with the rest of your life. If you want to have a sustainable career, you know, basically, you're the one that has to make the outreach because you're the one who's going to get the email addresses. You're the one that's going to get the data in terms of an audience that may you know know of your work and may be interested in see, not only seeing it, but perhaps being part of funding it if you, obviously, you know, a lot of people use that, you know, use that uh, crowdfunding, you know, through, um, you know, you know, Seed and Spark and, you know, Indie, Indie Go-Go and um, obviously Kickstarter and others, you know, a lot of them is to kickstart their project, you know. You know, right. and that's a now the whole cottage industry itself. Mm-hmm. Yes, crowdfunding mm-hmm. is really a wonderful way to help fund your film if you know how to play the game. That has certain yes. rules in it too. It's not free money. It's money you're gonna have, you're gonna work for. You know, basically. <laughs> oh, definitely. Yeah, how you make your presentation, setting it up on the website, and then eventually fulfilling those perks for different levels of funding. You know, so you know it's it's work. It's a different type of work for your money, but it's it is work, and you you got to do it, or you got to bring in people that are going to help you do it. That who know how to do it. Absolutely right. Well, thank you so much, Robert. We learned. I just keep always learning every time we have a discussion like this. It's such a, a joy to get to spend time with you. Thank you very thank much you. for Same here. sharing your years. Oh, you're so kind. We just hope that. Um, Good things are continue to happen. I know that you've got some wonderful clients and you've got some good films you're working on. So best of luck to all that. Thank you. Thank okay. you very much. Okay. Yeah, I'll Thanks, speak Claire. to you soon. Bye. Speak to you soon. Yes, Bye. take good care. Be well, everyone. Bye, Claire. Thank you. Now, in its second edition, Carol Dean's popular book, The Art of Film Funding, has 12 new chapters to cover all areas of film financing and how to avoid expensive pitfalls. Learn how to start with an idea and end with a trailer. How to make an ask for money. Create your story structure and your trailer. Legal advice, fair use, successful crowdfunding, how to ask for music rights, and what insurance you can't shoot without. Available on Amazon under Carol Dean and at FromTheHeartProductions.com. I want to remind our listeners that David Raiklin is a brilliant and talented award-winning musician who scores films and can compose music for a trio or for a full orchestra. David is a very good friend to the independent filmmaker and comes highly recommended by From the Heart Productions. If you need music to help tell your story, please contact him at davidraiklin.com. That's David, R-A-I-K-L-E-N dot com. And Carol and I want to thank you for tuning in to The Art of Film Funding. 
please visit our website at fromtheheartproductions.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Good luck with your films, everyone.